Hello listeners and welcome to the last bonus episode in our second series of podcasts, Deconstructing Clichés Around the Philippines. I'm Ellie Kent, the editor of New Mandala, but this series is brought together by Dr. Nicole Curato, who, as well as being a long-standing contributor to New Mandala in many forms, is now an associate professor in the University of Canberra's Centre for Deliberative Democracy and Global Governance. If this is the first episode you've listened to, there is a whole back catalogue for you to dip into after this. But first, Nicole joins me now to introduce this final episode, which deals with a debate that many Southeast Asia scholars will be familiar with, and that is the congestion of populous cities. Are they too crowded, Nicole? Or is there another way to think about cities like Manila, or Jakarta, or Hanoi, and how they function? And who did you find to discuss this with you? You know, Ellie, I could not think of a better conversation partner for this episode. We are talking to Professor Mary Raselis, one of the pillars of Philippine sociology. And she's devoted her entire life to working with urban poor communities in the Philippines. So if anyone's looking for inspiration to conduct action research, Professor Raselis is certainly an energizing figure in the field. And her message in this episode is quite simple. Um, don't drive the poor out of the city to decongest the city. Uh, the poor are the city's lifeblood. They make our cities move and thrive. So when we hear master plans of decongesting the city, we need to be critical and ask, well, decongest for whom? Who is privileged by these attempts to decongest Manila or Jakarta or Teal or in different contexts in the region? So. Professor Salas generously shared her time to record this chat in the sidelines of the Philippine Sociological Society's annual conference held last year at the Central Mindanao University. Professor Salas was one of the keynote speakers from this conference. So I hope our listeners enjoy the show in our season finale. The cliche we're talking about today is we need to decongest Manila. The push to decongest Manila has been alluring a rallying cry for many middle-class residents who find urban poor communities as eyesore to a megacity. We will unpack this cliché and draw on decades of empirical research on urban justice by no less than Professor Mary Rosales. Professor Rosales, welcome to Philippines Beyond Clichés. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. So, there are many misconceptions about the role of urban poor communities in megacities like Manila, and I hear this a lot from middle-class communities who say that we need to decongest Manila. And one way to do it is to push the poor out of the city so we can build high-rise condominiums and more shopping malls. Where is this cliche coming from? Well, exactly what you're saying. There are middle-class group that is promoting this that has learned uh, what cities are supposed to be like based on kind of a European-American model they don't recognize or are unwilling to recognize that Southeast Asian cities have always been different. The cities of the South are people cities. And they're people who occupy the streets, who, who, who live. That's their everyday life. And I guess the main sentence there is that the city cannot run without that population, which com- composes the informal settlers alone, one-third of the population. The city would fall apart. It couldn't because all the social services at the lower level or the lower economic level are done by them. 
what are the trends um, when it comes to relations of, let's say, local governments or private sector with urban poor communities in Manila? What have you observed in your decades of research? Well, when we started uh, with urbanized, organized urban communities, they happened to be mainly on national government land in Quezon City. So the target, in a way, was always the national government. And that has been, for years, the focus. And there are many things I could say about it. But let me just skip that to, to now, we realize it's really local governments that they have to, that they should have been addressing more. And they've been doing that as, as the, the people who make decisions about them in their own homes. They're the ones who evict and so on. But there's now a third component, and that's what you mentioned, the private sector. It's really the private sector who is, who are the urban planners, you might say, in that they control the whole land situation. And urban poverty is directly related to availability of land mm -hmm. for people to live. Yeah. And so, however, the private sector has kind of been left out of the confrontational process because we've tended to look at national government and more recently local government. But now we realize with the kinds of displacements going on around Mega Manila, the outside parts, uh, which are private land, that, that it's really private developers that are now causing tremendous problems of displacement and increasing poverty. So help us understand this, because it's easy to have this impression that when, let's say, um, land near rivers, prime real estate, are cleared, and I'm doing air quotes here yes, for our yes. listeners, are cleared of informal settlements. It's beautiful. There's a new shopping mall. There's a park. What is problematic in that picture? Well, that it, it doesn't take into consideration those who have been displaced uh, and let moved somewhere where allegedly they'll have a better life. But the evidence is very clear now for many years that these out-of-town relocation sites for urban, you know, informal settlers from Manila just don't work. Half of them, half of the people come back because they can't survive there. Yeah. Right? And the ones who, are, who remain in hopes that they can build some kind of life find all kinds of problems, insufficient resources, insecurity now increasing, local governments which don't want to take responsibility for them because mm -hmm. they were foisted upon them. Mm -hmm. So. Out-of-town relocation has not, not been a successful approach. And, and so the urban poor communities that I know and work with are striving for on-site. In other words, if they can clear uh, an estero, but then build a condominium, it shows that if they would do on-site upgrading for the people who were there before as part of the social housing program, it can be done. Mm. It's a question of who's deciding, you know, who gets what. And we know that the powerful forces in society are the ones who control. I remember a colleague described this as master planning, as planning for the masters. <laughs> ah, so very good. I hadn't heard that. Very good. So it's really, it's really confronting and asks, I guess, our urban poor, uh, urban poor communities to also start demanding for better treatment from the state and the private sector. But how is that possible? If but first of all, I think in your own work with Baseco communities, mm -hmm. is it fair to assume that urban poor communities are powerless, that they can't organize, that they can't stand up for themselves when dealing with more powerful forces in society? Oh, not at all. I started in working in this area 
during the Marcos administration, when the Zone One Tondo organization was was developed, you know, from community organizing, uh, and that was 50 years ago. Uh, and under martial law, they were able to to gain access, gain the land uh, that they were on, which originally w was intended for the port development, uh, and they were supposed to move somewhere else. But because of organizing, they managed to stay, and they're still there, although I don't know how many generations later. Mm -hmm. And that model has spread throughout, at least certainly Metro Manila, Cebu, and a few other places. It can be done, yeah. but so it has to have organizing. What makes these organizations successful? What makes a good urban justice movement in the Philippines? Uh, well, one is you, you, you have to have trained community organizers initially come in and help them, you know, we go through what does it, you know, how do you analyze your situation? What are the issues that really concern you? What do, can you do? What do you think you want to do something about? Uh, let's propose what we're going to do. And if it's just going to be to, um, uh, I remember one of the Tondo Foreshore was, we need water, uh, but they won't allocate water, more water faucets, public faucets at the time, uh, because the contention then 50, 40 years ago was, if you give any services, then people will stay. Mm. You want them out. So you, you stall, you don't want to give anything. So the, they organized, and really it was the women, who were often the leaders in urban informal settlements, who uh, the tactic they worked out was they just took their laundry and their kids to the um, site of the factory, uh, the Lua, the water authority at the right. time. And there were faucets outside for the cleaning. And they all brought their laundry and their kids there, and they began to do their washing right there on the premises ah. of the water authority. Right. Of course, the kids had uh, candy and chocolates, which had been provided, and they were all over the place peeing and mm. getting their hands uh, on the desks of the officers who were completely taken by surprise, which is one of the tactics yes. of this kind of organizing. And finally, they said, yeah, all right, all right, all right, just go. We will provide. And they said, when? You know, sign what date would you plan, and 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 it happened. Right. So, you can they can make those kind of demands, and usually they start with small. For us, it looked like small scale, but for them, to get you know five more water taps when you only had one, you know, is is some etc. So, but you keep building on that strength. When once people get a sense that they can do it, of personal capacity, and they, but they know it has to be with a group because if they're individuals, they can be attacked easily. But it has to be with a group always that's, that knows the issues, can articulate them. And, and that's has happened over the, over the years. Yeah. That has spread very much. I think I really like that interpretation because it gives emphasis to the everyday efforts yeah. that um, women especially um, put in to build their political capacities and develop their voice mm -hmm. to demand from the state that change doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. You mentioned the role of um, community organizers here. Can you talk to us more about that? Well, initially in, uh, in the Tondo Foreshore, which is the first time they were brought in in that way, uh, these were, we, we brought in Herb White, who was a disciple of uh, Saul Alinsky ah, yes. of, of uh, Chicago Stockyard organizing fame. And Herb White had been part of his group. Herb White then organized in Rochester the, the you know, the Kodak, I think, or camera, anyway, uh, workers. And then he organized, he came to, he went to Korea 
where the Protestant Christians got him to do organizing. And that's where people here, the organizer Dennis Murphy and some of the Protestant leaders who began to get quite ecumenical about poverty, said, why does he come here and train Filipino community organizers in that conflict confrontation demand style, right. but peaceful, you know, not uh, nonviolent organizing. That was the whole pitch. That's what makes this one different. Why is that important to emphasize? It's nonviolent form of organizing to make it a dis to make a distinction with those who would probably um, cross the line in yeah. terms of making demands. Well, because it recognizes that if you get into violent protests, of course, at the Marcos time, that meant you must be a communist, right? Right. So okay. then you can get jailed and and uh, disappeared. Uh, so you you had to have. Well, for us, it was quite non-violent non approaches because you can get some things done. Now, at the time, of course, when the left began to see how much was happening, they began to infiltrate and they did provide the, the Marxist framework, which for many of the urban poor, very aware organizers by that time, not organizers, but urban poor leaders, you know, were quite taken by that. And then they, some of them began to get into more violent protests when they were clobbered by the Metrocom jail, that's when Trini Adero was, I think, uh, you know, picked up and tortured and so on. So you, that's reality. You you have one thinking that you want to change the structure of society, and we would all agree that structural transformation is important. But at the same time, ordinary people's everyday lives, you know, they maybe want something for their kids. They have short short term goals for the moment you know? and and you, you have to respond to that you know that their lives visibly improve with themselves making the, the decisions you know? which is a very valid position to have yeah. I mean it's short term but it's valid yeah. because we're talking about well-being quality of life and dignity when you're exactly. talking about this you mentioned about um, broad structural transformations and you've been doing this research for you said three decades or more yeah. now um, what are the major transformations that you noticed in this span of time in urban poor community in Manila? One has been um, getting government structures like the National Housing Agency, uh, other agencies of the government, to begin to talk to people as, as people, you know, as, as uh, persons whom they're supposed to serve rather than control or you know, dispose of. So through through community organizing, uh, people have learned that you can make demands of, of that sector, and if and more recently, what they began to develop what's called people's plans, you know? yeah. and these were really quite structured and well thought out, and they got the assistance, the NGOs help, but the NGOs got assistance of urban planners and engineers who who could help them with the technical part, usually for free as part of their own commitment, mm -hmm. but mobilize that. And when they present people's plan, when, when finally NGOs enable them to get, and the church was very important there. We would always call the bishop, could you call the president to say that uh, they want to see him? Yeah, yeah, it depends on which president, but <laughs> but uh, uh, get the national, call the National Housing Authority person that he should listen to their thing, you know, and often that would happen. and. I've seen it happen that when uh, authorities speak to people who are well-informed, 
who can answer questions, who know the data, and that's where sociologists coming in to help uh, are useful, uh, they're so taken by surprise because they never expect that less educated people who are poor know anything. And when they learn from that direct confrontation that actually they know a lot and they have solutions, even if they don't accept them for a long time, but they keep going and keep going. Mm -hmm. uh, then, you know, it's a very slow process and it's, it's a crime that's taken 10, I mean, 50 years just to get to where we are now with a few uh, such places. Yeah. Right? So, Professor Rosales, what then is the ideal? I mean, what is an ideal megacity for you? How does it look like? What is this? Can you paint a picture for us of a megacity where the poor have a space in the megacity, have rights to demand? Paint that picture for us, especially, I think, for listeners who have this impression that they must be erased from the yeah. city. There's not a good megacity if you have poor communities. Now, first of all, they are citizens of the country, so they have a right to be where where they they feel their lives can improve. And the way the society is, is set up, the ways they see improvement are going to be in the cities. And that's, of course, all over the world, right? That's why we have such high urbanization rate. Uh, so there has to be, there have to be spaces for them because they are valid, they're citizens and they are valid contributors to the urban economy. The, what is missing are the services and secure tenure, right, and housing. So their government's role with some private sector support, which is very difficult, but government's role essentially is to provide those social spaces, social housing spaces for them mm -hmm. and control the land market and not just give everything to the developers because, you know, they, they the, the developers uh, say, well, it's a that's the problem of the local government. We pay the fees, we all of this. It's not our role, but it is their role. If they want to make profits in this country, there has to be a more redistributive approach mm -hmm. to, to investments. Right. They can't just do that by crushing half of the population. And if they want a peaceful business, which is what they want, then they should not start creating situations where people have no other opportunities but maybe to get into you know, more criminal activity, more, more protests, more violence, urban violence, drugs. You know, 20 years ago, I was already saying, we are going to have a terrible problem in drugs because I saw it in Brazil. I said, what happens in Latin America happens in the Philippines 20 years later. Yeah. Indeed, you know. These are urban problems, and yeah, we, yeah. We, we know about this when we read classical sociological texts, right? Yeah, when societies yeah. change and urbanization happens, these are standard problems that we face, which I think brings me to the question of leadership. Mm. So there has been a lot of attention with the role of mayors in shaping the way cities can progress. Yeah. Our own president right now was a mayor of Davao City. There's a lot of attention with the new Manila mayor, Isco Moreno, and the new Pasig mayor as well as someone who's a bit more progressive, more in tune with the needs of the poor. Um, well, I'd like to ask you about uh, the role of leadership and governance more broadly with emerging issues um, with urban poor communities. Local governments really now have to take a much stronger position to recognize that a large part of the population, their voters come from the urban poor communities, which is, you know, and, and they coddle them, as, as some of them, they coddle the poor because they want the votes. Yes, but then, but poor people or the poor households, resident households, 
have rights and, and can make demands. So it really looked, we know it's possible because Bessie Rubetti, of course, in, in Vico, was the example of a mayor who could, who recognized the value of organized people's groups, would talk to them, would, would not always agree, but they would negotiate, they would talk. And the great thing is that we found that it's the women in the communities who become very strong in making those demands. And when I asked a group of women once in San Paulo, why are you the ones who seem to be in, in the leadership positions here? And they said, well, you know why? Because then our husbands are looking for work or they're not here. We're here all the time. We know the issues. We worry about our children and our children tonight. So of course, when people or the organizers came and we realized we could do things and say things, of course we would do it. And then they sort of smile and they say, besides, now that we have learned how you have to negotiate, you have a proposal, you go with a proposal, you're going to negotiate, make that demand. You never request, you demand. Huh. And we know that you know women in this country, we, we know how to negotiate. And she gave me an example. You know, if I tell my husband, you know, go to the, can you go to the market and buy, uh, I don't know what, the fish. fish. Yeah. And, you know, he'll go and the Tindero, the, the owner will, store owner will say, yeah, 20 pesos. You know, that husband will take 20 pesos out of his pocket <laughs> if he has it and, and pay it. So if I go there and she says 20 pesos, I'll say, are you, what? <laughs> no, 10, and then we negotiate yes. and bargain, and it comes out 15 or 16. She said, that's the way you handle the officials. You kind of know them already and know who is more pliable and who's not. And we, we strategize and we know how to negotiate. You know, if, and we make demands. If a man demands that the whole macho thing comes in and the, the, usually the male uh, lead uh, government person, you know, they get into a fight, argument. Yes. But you know, women, we know how to deal with that. So we know how far we can go and then we have to pull back and find some other strategy. She said, that's why we get where we get, because right. we know how to manage relationships with the rich people. Which I think is very fascinating because the opposite of that approach is to go with the strong man. To have someone run a city who's not consultative, but someone who has the political will, right? Mm. Like these are values that are so alluring yeah. for some Filipinos as well. So what do you think of that paradigm that's quite the opposite of what you're describing to me, where officials are willing to listen and negotiate uh, to women? Well, they're not willing initially. It takes a yeah. long time. It means women keep pushing and pushing, and they get annoyed and say, well, deal with them. And <laughs> yes. you know, it's that strategy yes. of wearing them down kind right. of thing. Uh, and so, but that's very much in the social side for, for you know, local situations uh, that, that to be solved. In the case of the, the new mayors, you know, we were very optimistic, but unfo unfortunately, the president, Mrs. Uh, um, State of the Nation, uh, Zona spoke of uh, we have to clear, get the sidewalks cleared, and now that's a requirement for every city, yes. for to every mayor. So this or our progressive mayor, so-called, have uh, decided or decreed everybody has to be swept off the street. And these are ordinary, most many of them women, Tindera sellers, who are selling medium to small scale stuff. That that is, uh, if not the major source of income if the husband's not working, 
because he can get employed now and then. It depends, construction. She's the mainstay. And now all of those women and, and some men, of course, I mean, the sellers on the streets, uh, uh, the ones who get on buses to sell things, uh, tricycle drivers or the kajak drivers, mm -hmm. you know, they're, they have no place in the city, it seems. Well, he wants to clean up the, the sidewalk, but and supposedly to improve traffic when, of course, the number of cars which coming using the streets, you don't deal much with that other than the one day off thing, you know. And, and yet the people on the sidewalks who, who are major income, whose major income that is, are not given any other options. They're told they can rent places in the market. The rentals are too high for them, considering that they're earning, they're too far from where they live, et cetera, et cetera. There's just a lack of or willing, unwillingness to comprehend the needs of uh, urban poor. And that's why urban poor have to organize themselves to make those demands known. And NGOs help, church groups help, academics help. But that paradigm has to change. And that's why I'm saying in the sociological convention, sociologists, anthropologists have to start being much more forceful about the other paradigms of society. Exactly, because without that understanding, it's just so easy to say the problem is lack of discipline. Yeah. I mean, even if you want to stay in the market, like what yeah. you said, if there are no market stalls, yeah. you'd really have to sell in the streets. Yeah. I think I just also want to locate your research agenda on the importance of working with, not just studying, but working with urban poor communities. What is the passion and the logic behind this research agenda. Can you help us work out the body of work that you have um, specializing on this topic? Well, I think the way I came into this myself, as you know, as a social scientist, was I was doing regular research, the standard stuff, and but the, the organizers of the, of the community where I was near, where I was doing research, said, "Why don't you come and, you know, help us instead?" And when I saw what organizing can do. To, uh, it really, the, you know, I hate that word already, empower, but to give people a sense of capacity uh, and of dignity and that they can be recognized as human beings and citizens, you know, that total admiration of how they then charted their own destiny. And I said, I have to be part of that and my, help them do it. Not be, you know, stand out as representing them or being their leader, nothing like that, but just being, walking the talk, being with them, mm. because you can help them move their own uh, aspirations forward into action, because they're taking action, which community organizers help them do. And eventually, they get local community organizers, not from outside anymore. The local leaders become much more aware of how you run an organization. And the social scientists can then also write about this, because if they trust you, they'll be happy if you write about their situation. You can represent them if they trust you. And, and, and so you can begin to write about this and say, we need different ways of understanding the problem. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So how many godchildren do you have in Baseco? How many times have you? I think that's always a good test of ethnographic yeah. work. How many godchildren yeah. do you have? How many beauty pageants have you judged? <laughs> oh, well, um, how many? Yeah, 
you know, beauty contests. Singing uh, contests. Yeah, 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 all of that. Yes, I'm often there, you know, doing those kinds of things. Yeah. And you're kind of okay rapper as well. It's also <laughs> essential. Yeah. Professor yeah. Rosales, unfortunately, time is not on our side, so we have to summarize. So, in summary, do you think we need to decongest Manila by sending the poor outside the city? No, definitely not. The city will lose. Uh, its, its economy will collapse. And it will, it will continue to do tremendous injustice to one-third, one-half of the citizenry of the society. I mean, what, what is a country for? What is a government for? It's for all its people. And so they can't giving, keep giving all the benefits uh, to the private sector, so-called, without making sure that some of the profits that are engendered go to, to the poor. Can I give you just one last example? In the Cebu Reclamation, I just heard from Bindu Fernandez, who was the city administrator and was a community organizer and a very strong people's uh, person, that when he was city administrator, they did a land reclamation, uh, but they got a loan from Japan, uh, very concessional rates, and they filled in land, but they didn't sell all of it immediately. They sold one portion, which they could have paid the loan, but they decided to spread it out. And um, because the value, well, all right, so that land was used by private sector investments, but the city owned the money, uh, the land, so they used the money for massive social services distribution. Mm. So, you know, if a local government really wants to have a thriving and successful city, which is not violent, you know, where you don't have people dying, children, and misery, you know, then uh, you have to think of the city as a whole and how the better off parts can legitimate, you know, can share that this through the government efforts bring about some of the benefits that, that the private sector can bring to the benefit of the, of the large majority poor. Because in the end, if their situations improve and they have better housing and better health, we will have a much more, you know, a real city, a city of people who are happy people yeah. at the end. And I think it's great to end on that note, to discuss the politics of possibilities. So mm -hmm. thank you, Professor Raselis, for inspiring us. Oh, you're very welcome. <laughs> Anyone okay. who gives me a chance to talk about my favorite subject. <laughs>